Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. There you are. And uh, before we get rolling, uh, just a couple things. How about that Kalahari retreat? Over uh, 2,000 students. Glad it's. Uh, I'm glad those adults are there and that I'm here. I don't mind saying that to you. <laughs> I was a youth pastor for a while, and uh, wow, I like getting my sleep. Uh, I, I was texting with Hagen. We got uh, seven of our people there, and uh, I was texting with Hagen last night, and he said that in one the, the session last night, there was probably 30 to 50 kids that had uh, indicated salvation, and uh, he was able, yeah, so that was good. And uh, so he was able to talk to a couple of the guys. I don't know if they were in his room or what, but um, and, and so those two guys had accepted Christ as well. I also want to throw out a couple uh, other things. For the, the party, we're talking about the party. So hopefully you guys got an email. If you didn't, check your spam. Um, or if you don't ha- if we don't have your email, then, of course, we can't get you all that exciting news. But we've got a thing planned for uh, February 4th called The Party. And we are going to go and over to... Is it Penny Joe's or Joey Penny's? Or, anyways, we're we're gonna go over to the uh, we're gonna keep our party in town and go over to the the bowling alley. And even if you don't bowl, uh, I'd encourage you to go over there because I don't. Um, so, but I plan on having a good time, and we'll have food there. And feel free to bring board games if you want to. If you don't want to bowl, and I, I don't know what else is over there. I've only been in there once. Um, but it's going to be a good time. And we can kind of call it like our fifth birthday party because we're going to be five years old in March as a church, and so uh, it should be pretty good. A number of you have already signed up, so we got a good thing going here. Let's keep it, keep it rolling. And then um, we do a thing around here uh, called the Men's Leadership Group. Every year I take guys who are interested. Um, I meet with them once a month, and we go through doctrine, theology, and then kind of church philosophy, what we do, why we do what we do. Out of this group of guys who take this, a lot of times these are the guys that we pull for leadership in our church. And so we've had a number of guys go through it over the last few years. I'm going to start another one. So the last um, Saturday in January, I think it's the 29th, um, I'll be meeting here with whoever wants to do this, guys. We've got five guys so far that have signed up to do it, and uh, it's a good time. So again, it's just once a month meeting, uh, about an hour, hour and a half, and um, it'll take us about 10 months, 11 months to do it, so we'll get done by the end of the year. But anyways, so guys, if you're interested in, in that, I've sent out an email on that as well. I know that email's not cool. I get it. <clears throat> Nobody checks your emails anymore, cause, but that's about the best way we can get information out to you guys. So uh, be checking that and join us. Like I said, we've got five guys so far that are going to be going through. A couple of those guys are going through, through it a second time because it was so good. Am I right, Clark? So good. Yeah. Anyways, go ahead and turn to the book of Esther. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, Use your Bible, your device, whatever you use. If you're using the Bible there and it chairs around you, it's page 510. We're going to jump into the story. Young Jewish orphan girl who God used to save Israel from destruction. Last week we did kind of a, a background, here's what's going on in the story, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go back and relive all that, so you can get up on our podcast or Facebook and, and find that. But last week, one of the things that I mentioned was there's a truth that we see in Esther, and that's this, that God will always do what he says he'll do. He, he fulfills his promises, is another way of putting that, no matter how long ago the promise was made. So God is still fulfilling promises he made to Israel three to 4,000 years ago. 
and he plans to do that. There's still some promises left that he's going to do that. And, and we have promises he's made to us as Christians, followers of Christ, and he's going to fulfill those things. This is true because of something we call God's providence. Now, that's kind of a big word, and some of you guys are like, oh, wait, I'm not in the P's yet in the dictionary, so I'm not really sure what providence is. It's a big theological term. We don't use it much today. Our founders used to use it to reference God. Anytime they reference God, they use providence. Uh, and what providence is, it's basically God's foresight and power to watch over his creatures and accomplish his eternal plans. Now in the Bible, what catches our attention most often when it comes to God's providence, God's working, is uh, the miracles that he does. But what we don't seem to catch all the time is that between the miracles, there's at times hundreds of years between one miracle and another miracle. Because God most often shows his providence. He cares for his creatures, you and me, this world, the universe. He makes sure that his eternal plans are being worked out. As he takes his infinite knowledge, because he knows all things, including things that could happen and haven't happened, and his eternal power, so that as we make our choices, our free will choices in life, our decisions that we make, he can still take all of that and still work out his eternal plans, God's providence. The author of Esther has done something very interesting to kind of focus us in on this whole providence thing, and that is, the author never mentions God. There's no mention of God or even any kind of religious stuff other than fasting, which happens later on, and we'll get to that. But he, he never mentions God, and there are no miracles. Because again, God most often works through the decisions that people make. And so... In this uh, series, as we look at this, I'm going to give us a truth for life. I've just kind of taken all this and I've summarized it into a very short statement that hopefully will stick with us. And so here's the truth for life. God works through our earthly decisions to accomplish his eternal plans. All right, so God works through our earthly decisions as we make choices and do our thing, free will. In his incredible power and ability, he actually can work through those to accomplish his eternal plans. Now for Israel, the big old eternal plan that he has for Israel, that we talked about last week, is that he's going to work through Israel, keep Israel safe as a nation, in order to bring Jesus Christ, the one who's going to save not just Israel, but all mankind. And so we see God working throughout the Old Testament. We're going to see it in Esther, how he works through the decisions that people make in order to keep Israel safe safe for when Christ would come, which he, of course, has done already. For us as Christians, the eternal plan is this. Once we place our faith in Christ, he is going to use our circumstances, our situations, the things that we face to help us become more like Jesus or to grow spiritually, to become more spiritually mature. There's a bunch of different ways we phrase it, but ultimately is we're going to think more like Jesus and we're going to respond to people and circumstances the way Jesus would respond. In order that, through us, people would be drawn to him for salvation. If we could just grab hold of this truth, 
if we could just look at what's going on in our lives and say, okay, God, I, I don't quite understand it. I don't know what you're really doing in this. But I know that ultimately it's for me to become more like Jesus and for you to draw people to Christ for salvation. It would make our situation so much easier to deal with. We would probably think, yeah, okay, if that's the case, let's go through this. Let's be more excited about it. So each week we're going to see this truthful life played out, and then we're going to take what we've learned and attempt to apply it to our lives. So today we're going to see that before Israel was ever, um, you know, threatened, God uses King Ahasuerus. I know it's a mouthful, but I'll try to say it every time. Sometimes I'll just skip it. Um, and he'll use a guy named Haman, a guy named Mordecai, a bunch of other people that are named and unnamed, and then also Esther. He's going to use their decisions or work through their decisions to make sure that Israel is safe. I'm not going to give you their whole story because we've got four more weeks of this, so I got to, you know, and I get paid by the word. You know, we know the whole thing, right? So, all right. So let's, let's get things kicked off here as the author kind of gets us rolling. It says, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes I. So if you're a history buff, you might be familiar with Xerxes I. That's his Greek name. The, by the way, the Ahasuerus... Okay, so for you who are first-time attenders, I do have a little bit of a speech impediment, which makes, you know, God always kind of laughs about that. I don't know, make him a pastor. So these words are kind of hard for me, so stick with me. So the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, which is about 483 B.C., he gave a banquet for all of his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, because you remember they combined to one nation, the nobles and the princes of his provinces, being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days. A hundred and eighty days these guys hung out. Six months. Imagine that party that was going on there. Six months of it. You would think people would be like, okay, can we go home now? I mean, this is just ridiculous. Anyways, when these days were completed... Here's a great idea. The king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel, which is the fortified section in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns. You just picture this, right? Looks like my house. The couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry which is a kind of a speckled stone. I looked it up because I have no clue what that was. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law, and here's the law. There was no compulsion. In other words, drink, drink, drink. If you want to drink, drink it up. If you don't want to drink, don't worry about drinking. Whatever you want to do, Here's my best wine, best alcohol. Live it up if you want. For so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace 
which, by the way, the palace belonged to King Ahasuerus. If you didn't get the whole point there, I guess, that he had a lot of power. He had a, a lot of wealth. And so we have this um, map up here, just as a reminder from last week. This is, this is the, the king who reigned over 127 provinces. It's, it's the largest empire ever. It goes from India all the way through to Israel, present-day Turkey, and into present-day Bulgaria. His father was Darius the Great, which, by the way, Daniel served this king, Darius. He's the one who expanded the empire to this length, this size. His mother was Atasa. She's the, the daughter of Cyrus the Great. He was the first king of the Persian Mede. He kind of combined them together into one massive and powerful nation. This is the Cyrus that allowed the first return of Jewish people who were in exile after being taken over by Babylon, who then was taken over by the Pers uh, Persians and, and Medes. So he allows them to go back to the land, whoever wanted to go back. We know that Mordecai and Esther's families, they decided to stay. But just a side note here, kind of a crazy thing, that 150 years before Cyrus said that Israel could go back to Israel, to the land of Israel. God told Isaiah, there is going to be a guy named Cyrus who's going to be a king of the nation of Persia who's going to let Israel, those who are in captive, they're not captive yet. This was 150 years or so before they were ever captive. Israel's going to be in captivity but there's going to be a guy named Cyrus who's going to be a king of this country named Persia and he is going to let Israel go back into the land 150 years before it happened. I mean, you talk about the providence of God. But here's the deal. Everything that Ahasuerus has is his dad's. The nation is the size that it is, the empire is the size that it is because of his dad. The wealth that he's displaying to everybody because of his dad. The power that he has, the prestige that he has, the authority that if somebody walked into his presence and he didn't invite them, they could kill them, all because of what his dad has put together for him. And yet this guy thinks so highly of himself that they've found inscriptions, now that they've dug up this area, where he calls himself the king of kings. I don't know what God would think of that. Or I'm the king of the whole earth. Obviously he's not, but it's a big section. They said that 44% of the world's population was probably in this empire. He's the, the God or, or the great king. So he's got these inscriptions. And he thinks a lot of himself. And as you read through the story, you can kind of get a feel for who this guy is. We're not going to get into that as much. But three years into his reign... He gives this massive six-month party for all the leaders, all the political guys, all the military guys. And he wants to show them the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty. He's going to lay it out there for him. Look how awesome I am, the man that you follow. Now, it doesn't say it in here, but as you start looking into history and what's taking place, 
It's most likely what he was doing for these six months, and while they were partying, which was also part of their religious worship, and, and they always felt that they were closer to God when they got drunk, and so maybe there was a whole planning thing going on here. Hey, let's get drunk and plan. Doesn't sound wise, but anyways, that's what they thought. Anyways, we know that he, shortly after this, invades Greece. And so scholars think that probably what's happening here, during the six months of partying and hanging out, they're also planning to go after Greece, to attack Greece. Greece, uh, before, when his dad was in power, they had um, helped with some of the uprisings in other parts of the empire. And so, uh, you know, I has to worry, saying, well, I'm going to go and take care of that. They disrespected my dad. I'm going to take care of these guys. And so he used this party to kind of gain influence and, and help his leaders be like, okay, this guy's got it. He's got the finances to do this. This is something that we as a nation should do, and we can get behind him. Then he follows up that party with a, a shorter party, which seven days is kind of a long party, but whatever the case. It's shorter, has a lot more people. It's all those that are in the fortified portion of, of the city. And so all those who serve there, they're invited to this. From the least to the greatest, they're invited to go ahead and, and drink and eat and just enjoy themselves and walk around and look at the splendor of Ahasuerus and all the beautiful linens and the gold couches and the silver couches. Doesn't sound very comfortable to me, but maybe they had extra padding, you know, on the backside, I don't know. But anyways, it was cool, I guess, to have all this stuff. The patio, as they walked around and as they hobnobbed, and <laughs> yeah, this is a great time. <laughs> They're walking around on, on a patio of porphyry of marble, mother-of-pearl, costly, precious stones. The, the Persians were interesting. They, they loved to flaunt their wealth. And so like, and when they went into battle, the soldiers, they wore gold. They went into battle with gold on, thinking, we're awesome. We can fight with gold on. That's how cool we are. That's how wealthy we are. Their men actually wore jewels in their beards, which around here, that's not a big deal. I mean, we have that happening, you know, all the time. Uh, so, but over there, evidently, that was kind of a big deal. Not so much of a big deal for us. It says that people were, they were drinking out of all kinds of gold uh, goblets, some believe that these were actually some of the, the gold vessels that Nebuchadnezzar back in the day when he defeated Israel, he took them out of the temple when he destroyed the temple. Now they're drinking out of these things that were made for really worshiping God. And even Queen Vashti, she gave a party for all the women. And if you wondered whose palace that was, that was King Hasworth's. It's not, not hers, it's his. So life was good but not for long. As you can imagine, this arrogant king who has just shown everybody everything he has and how awesome he is, who the Bible now says he's become very merry, which is a nice way of saying he's hammered, he's completely drunk, and he says there's one thing that not everybody has seen yet. There's one thing that I have that's better than anybody's. And he tells his servants, 
I want you to go get Queen Vashti and tell her to come in here in front of all these drunk guys and present herself with her crown. Now, some Jewish historians believe he meant just her crown for her to come in without any clothes on, with a crown on, and let all these drunk guys check her out. Now, whether that's the case or not, I don't think really matters. What wife wants her husband, her drunk husband, to tell, hey, why don't you come into my party full of drunk guys and show yourself? Whatever, what, it doesn't matter what you're wearing, you wear a clown suit. You're not going to want to do that, right? That is disgusting. That is beyond arrogant. Queen Vashti is the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody's going to treat her that way. So she refuses. I'm not coming. The Bible says that this makes the king very angry. So now we have a very drunk, very angry king who controls everything, including whether somebody lives or dies. There's an interesting story about his anger. Uh, there's several, but I pulled this one out. So he had about 300 guys build a bridge over a body of water. And after they got done, some storm came up and actually destroyed the bridge. So as the story goes, evidently, he was so angry that he goes out into the water and he starts whipping the water. Bad water. Can't believe you. And then he turns around and he has the 300 guys who built it beheaded because they couldn't build a bridge that could withstand a storm. This guy had anger issues. So drunk and angry, he goes and he turns to his lawyers and he says, okay, what, do, what does the law say about what we can do to Queen Vashti? So they come up with a plan. Now, thankfully, as far as we understand, they didn't have her killed. But he said, remove her from being the queen. Don't let her come into your presence ever again. Which Vashti's going, yeah. <laughs> Who wants to go in his presence? Look what he does. So she's kind of happy about it, I'm sure. And so then she goes back into the harem to be the rest of her life, which might have been a little bit, you know, might, she might have felt a little bit bad about it. She was queen, and now she's just one of the harem. And then they say, find somebody who's worthy of you, king. You're awesome. You're worthy. Find somebody who's worthy of you. And then, write a law. And here's the law. This cracks me up. Write a law that the men are the masters of their homes. Because if the women find out that Queen Vashti's refused you, then all of the wives are going to start refusing us. And it's going to be a mess in our country. So write a law telling everybody that the men are in control of their homes. I don't know how they, you know, made sure that happened. Um, anyways, by the way, Clark has a kind of cool little side note to this. That Clark's back here. If you want to hear the little side note to this, um, feel free. I'm like you, because you, you're the one who found this, man. I'm giving it to you. But it's good. It's kind of a neat little, neat little side, side note. So, so he does that, and he gets rid of his, his queen. So that brings us to Esther chapter 2. Now, key point. Between Esther one twenty two 
and 2, 1, there's about three or four years have elapsed. Okay, we read it and we think, oh, next thing, you know, next like a sitcom or an hour-long TV show, they solve the problem in 60 minutes, actually 40 minutes because of commercials, but whatever the case. But this is three or four years have taken place. After dismissing Vashti, now Hasuerus has gone to Greece, he's followed through on his threats, and he attacks Greece. While he's there, some of you guys may have seen the movie 300, that's kind of based on this. He takes 100 to 150,000 of his soldiers and they attack Greece. Greece fends them off with 7,000. They're able to do an end around and through some subterfuge. Got it this time. Couldn't come up the word at the 9 o'clock. Love that word, subterfuge. That kid still can't say it. Subterfuge, yeah. So they come do an end around and they finally win, but in the process, he's lost thousands of men, and his entire navy. So he comes limping back to Persia, to Susa. He's won, but he's depressed. He's discouraged. No doubt he's angry. He's looking for something or someone to make him feel better. Vashti used to be one of those people who made him feel better, but she's no longer around. So once again, he turns to his trusted servants. It says, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, so he's finally kind of calmed down after all this, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. So he almost always being a little like, regretful of what he might have done. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins, and it doesn't necessarily mean people, you know, women who haven't had sex with men, it could just mirroring age, you know. So be brought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Ladies, free cosmetics, huh? Isn't that awesome? Woo! Bill, then let the young lady... (laughs) I'm sorry, that slipped. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So these guys go out, and they go to all 127 provinces, and they find all the young ladies who are beautiful enough in their eyes to say the king may want them as his queen. Some believe maybe around 400 or more ladies, young ladies, were taken from their families. They couldn't say no, because this was the king's order. So 400 of these ladies or more are taken from their families, brought to Susa for the king. The author continues. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. Remember this is many years earlier, before the Persia, uh, Persia, Persia and the Medes took over. He was bringing up Hadassah, uh, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa, into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace 
into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. So enter Mordecai and Esther. We know what's happening here. They don't, right? They don't know what's going to be transpiring here in a little while. Mordecai and Esther, their family was brought to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, probably 120 years before this. Now the Persian Empire has taken over, and they're now living in the citadel in in Susa. They're of royal birth, so a failed king, King Saul, but still of royal birth. And Mordecai was responsible to raise Esther. We talked about this last week. You know, here's this young girl who her parents die. I mean, can you imagine having that experience at a young age and then having been raised by your uncle? So Esther, along with these other ladies, are, are entered into basically a, a beauty pageant. And they're supposed to impress the king. And whichever one impresses him most becomes queen, and the rest enter into his harem. Each woman receives a year-long spa treatment. You can read about it. You can see if you'd want that for yourself. They get cosmetics. They get a certain kind of diet. And the idea, so for a year, so all these girls are here, over four, you know, possibly over 400 of them, for a year this is happening before they even see the king. So this is going on. And then when it, once that year is over, one of them each night, would go in, or more, I don't know, with the king. And I don't have to get into details, right? We, we're all adults here. We understand what's happening. Okay. Go into the king, and then in the morning, the king would be like, yes, queen, or no, harem. Of course, anyways, kind of a sickening practice. So imagine Esther, who doesn't, know anything that we know, going into this situation. We're told that she finds favor with Haggai. I don't know if she wanted to find favor with that guy. Then we're told that she finds favor with all who see her. And then we're told that she finds favor with the king. So Haggai, because she finds favor with him, he's thinking, oh man, this girl's going to be great for the king. He actually gives her some servants and, and the night before she goes in, he gives her everything that he knows the king likes, and so she takes whatever it is that he gives her. And I don't know about you guys, but when I read through this stuff, I'm always asking questions, and so my question comes, why? Why, why is Esther, again, we know the story, but we've got to try to live where we're at and not be thinking ahead. Why would Esther find favor? Certainly, There's other beautiful young ladies in this group of 400. Why is she standing out? Is it something that Esther's doing? Or is it something maybe that God's doing and allowing and working through? We're also told that Esther didn't, we're told twice, that she didn't let anybody know that she was Jewish. So then I read this, I ask this question, why? Why not tell everybody that she's Jewish? There doesn't seem to be any issues between the Persians and the Jews, they're controlling the Jewish people. They're even letting Jewish people go back to their land. So what's the deal? Why would they do that? 
Or here's another question you, you might be even asking, and I know I did. Why didn't Mordecai say no? When the guys came to the house and they said, hey, we're taking Esther, why didn't he say no? You're not going to take my niece? We're not allowed to marry non-Jewish people. Even if it is a king, we're not allowed. God said, don't do that. Why didn't Esther say no? Daniel did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did. I'm sure they knew about the stories. Moses did. And then God did miracles. Why didn't they say no and let God do some miracle? But they didn't. They just went along with the fact that the king was evidently in charge. Wouldn't you love to know the answer? And I pique your interest. You're like, yeah, yeah, how do we know? We don't know. Story doesn't tell us. God doesn't want us to necessarily know, evidently. Why? It's not the point of the story. The point of the story is how God and his incredible, infinite power and knowledge works through our daily decisions to accomplish his eternal plans. We, we had a big debate in the pastor's meeting about this. The whole, was it right, was it wrong? It was fun. I threw that one in the middle of the room and, and here is the whole thing. We wasted the entire meeting. It was great. And got on and got some lunch. You know, got to, got to eat. You know what I'm saying? I would have done great at that six-month party, just eating all the food. I don't know. Is Persian food is it good? I don't know. I've never had it. Anyways, point is, we're not supposed to know. That's not the point. The point is that God works through daily decisions. So whether they're right or wrong, God still is working through Esther. And Esther spends the night with the king. The king finds favor in her. He loves her more than any of the other women, it says. And he makes her the queen. The chapter ends with some events that's going to move us forward to next week. So I'm going to read them, but you need to continue reading the story and we'll see how it plays out. But let's do that. Let's kind of get the story to move forward and then um, well, I'll end with some takeaways. It says this, In those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, in other words, his bodyguards, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. In other words, they're going to kill him. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles. So in other words, you know, the king's history, what's gone on in the king's life. They wrote these things down in the king's presence. And so we have a little foreshadow. You know, we have something that's going to, okay, this must be playing in some way, somehow. You have to continue reading to find out what that is and come back next week. But for now, I want to take some, look at some takeaways. Coming off this truth for life, God works through our earthly decisions to accomplish his eternal plans. So I want you to think about the issue that's on your heart and mind right now. Whatever it is. Relationship challenges, struggles, uh, work struggles, financial issues. Uh, whatever it is that's just kind of weighing on you right now. And I want you to think through these three things. Number one, don't ever forget that God is using your life situations to draw others to Jesus for salvation. 
Whatever it is we're going through right here, right now, whatever it is, God will use that, how you respond to the situation, to the people. He wants to use that to not only grow you to become more like Christ, but then to draw people to him for salvation. You might, the only reason you're going through something might just be for that. But you can know that whatever it is you're going through, that's God's eternal plan. Become more like Christ and to, through you, draw people to him for salvation. People are watching you. People are watching me. And they're saying, hey, they're Christians. How are they responding? How are they responding to me? How are they responding to the circumstance, to other people in their life? Secondly, God's working in your life now for future results. God was working in, in the nation of Persia four years before Esther ever got on, came on the scene. God's working now for future results. What you're going through now, may, you may not see anything for years as to why you went through what you've gone through. And last one, because of that, be obedient to what God's commanded you to do and let him work his eternal plan through you. Be obedient to what you need to do right now, right here, today, as you leave this building, as you go into this week, be obedient in all areas of your life. Let God take care of what the future is going to be and how he may use the decisions you're making now for whatever the future may be. Because what's going to happen is this. When you do that, you're going to look back on it and go, oh, I see how that all played out. God's providence. And then you're going to look at the future and go, he did that so I can trust him for that. God's providence is, has everything work out to where he wants it to be because he's working through us to accomplish his eternal plans. Let's go ahead and stand. We're closing prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for the opportunity to, to come into this building with our church family and with everything that's going on in our world and all the craziness of it and the fear that we're seeing in people, even in Christians fearful of what's going on. Oh, Lord, thank you so much that we can come in here and fellowship with each other and then to worship you together. Really, all of it's worship. Our fellowship is, our singing is, and then this encouraging message from a book that was written thousands of years ago. The truth still matters. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are using our daily decisions, and you will work within our daily decisions to accomplish your eternal plans. So we can have faith in that. We can trust that. We can move forward in confidence. Help us to see that this week as we move forward in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming. It's great to see you. Enjoy the sunny, cool weather.